0: AI and the people who use it can already see things that are invisible to most of us, including the future and any given individual's true colors. This is Retrace, segment number 9, October 31st, 2020, and we're interested in what's going on out there, and if we're interested in what's going on out there, then we should be interested in seeing, and by seeing we don't necessarily mean literally seeing, Uh, seeing with the mind is as important as seeing with the eyes, generally speaking. It depends on the context, of course. It's more important to see with the eyes when being pursued by a predator, but in trying to avoid a predator, maybe it's more important to see with the mind. Well, anyway, we're going to break down that distinction, or at least throw a lot of confusion all over it today. Um... Because there's a, there's a camouflage problem happening to our species, and that's going to affect our survival, and truth has nothing to do with it, and we're on a quantum chessboard. Okay, skipping ahead a little bit there. Let's start with a camouflage problem. We have here an essay by Ross Anderson, professor of security engineering at Cambridge, 2015. This is in the Brockman book, What to Think About Machines That Think, from which we will quote often. And uh, his the title of his essay is Who Pays the... Who Pays... Sorry. He Who Pays the AI Calls the Tune. And it sounds like it's going to be about who's paying the AI and calling the tune. And it isn't really about that, or at least... It's only about that in the last few seconds. And it's, you know, a little 800-word thing. It's a short essay. Uh, Okay, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the more interesting idea in this essay, this contribution to the book about predators and camouflage and, in a sense, rods and cones or whatever comes after rods and cones. Dear listener, you undoubtedly have you're likely to have both rods and cones. I'm sure there are people out there who don't have one or the other and, and that's, uh, that's just fine. But it would be easier if you had both and most of us do. Well, what comes after rods and cones? There must be something, right? Something always comes after what's now. What's now for us is rods and cones. What comes next? I mean, have you ever tried, dear listener, to, have you ever dealt with like the four-dimensional problem? They're trying to imagine like a, a four dimensional cube or the four dimensional space-time continuum or anything in four dimensions. And and we can just set aside the idea that the fourth dimension is what we experience as time. Let's just set that aside and pretend that's the fifth dimension and that there are four dimensions and so you can you can have a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, and you've got two dimensions. And then if you add uh, a, a depth axis, a, a, you know, X, y, a z axis, let's say, uh, that goes, you know, either towards you or away from you, uh, depending on where you move on it, then you've got your three dimensions, right? Where's the fourth dimension? Can you, I mean, each one of those dimensions is orthogonal, perpendicular, what word do you want to use, uh, to each other? Right angles everywhere, right? Right angles between... Each one of those axes. Can you think of a way of putting in a fourth one? Because, you know, physicists tell us that that's a pretty plausible description of reality. You know, space-time, general relativity, four-dimensional continuum, space-time continuum. Now they say the fourth dimension is time, and 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 they, well, all right, we're gonna we're gonna go down a hole. We're going to go down a black hole—no pun intended. There. Well, let's 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 back up. Okay. The point is, what well, comes after rods and cones? Maybe it's something that enables us to see a fourth dimension. I mean, there are people who, <laughs> again, here's an, look at all these potholes and sinkholes and black holes we're going to fall into. But there are people and and groups out there who believe uh, that you know there's evidence of that sort of stuff, and we interpret it as crazy people seeing crazy things. Um, but what we the way we should be thinking about crazy people seeing crazy things at least some of the time is that they're seeing more of reality than we can see and that we should be impressed by it okay fine well whatever let's say we need another s- structure in our inside of our eyes like a rod or a cone or a cylinder or what comes next a, you know a pyramid i mean what that can see that stuff okay um well, okay, if something comes next, maybe it's something physical like that, or maybe it's what machines, artificial intelligence and the people who control artificial intelligence. Should we call it AI or machines? I don't know. It's it's a hard Let's let's move back and forth. Uh maybe it's what they can already do with that stuff. Maybe that's the next rod and cone. Okay. Let's Let's hear from Professor Anderson. What's changing as computers become embedded invisibly everywhere is that we all now leave a digital trail that can be analyzed by AI systems. The Cambridge psycholog- uh, psychologist Michael Kaczynski has shown that your race, intelligence, and sexual orientation can be deduced fairly quickly from your behavior on social networks. On average, it takes only four Facebook likes to tell whether you're straight or gay. So whereas in the past, gay men could choose whether or not to wear their out-and-proud t-shirt, you just have no idea what you're wearing anymore. And as AI gets better, you're mostly wearing your true colors. It's as if we all had evolved in a forest where the animals could see only in black and white, and then a new predator came along who could see in color all of a sudden half your camouflage wouldn't work and you wouldn't know which half is that where we are is our camouflage not working and we don't really know it or some of us know it but we don't know which half is that what ai can see or if ai can't see or look for anything because it's not autonomous and it doesn't have its own energy sources and, and you know plans or, or abilities to reproduce independently. If AI is not there yet, which let's say it's not, I mean, if it is, it's fooling us all. Di- George Dyson makes that point a couple of times that there's no reason to believe that we would know when AI wakes up uh, because of, you know one of the first things it would figure out how to do is conceal itself. But anyway, let's say it hasn't woken up yet. Um... What about the people who are controlling it or using it as a tool, using it as, as, you know, as machines have always been used, or at least as we've always thought of machines being used? Well, the question moves on from the camouflage problem to the what else can it do problem. I mean, if it can see us in a way that we can't see ourselves and can't see each other— and we don't know anything about that way, really, unless we're deep in the inside of this of the the organizations who use AI or the specialists who really understand it. The people who really either the ones who build it or maybe the, maybe the people who build it don't really understand it the best. You know, the, I mean, who understood cars better? Uh, you know, Henry Ford or the mechanics who repaired them? It depends on what you think a car is. I mean, if if a car to you, is its physical instantiations, then it's the mechanic. But if it's this potential for transportation and commerce and, you know, liberty, then, you know, maybe it's the the businessman. Okay, well, what else can AI see that we can't or can't unless we have it at our disposal and truly understand it? Well, uh, we'll just mention briefly the um, economists who, uh, wrote prediction machines and argued that AI is just prediction machines, um, Agrawal, Gans, Goldfarb, those three, and we won't go into it, but maybe AI is seeing the future. Maybe that's what else it can see. We all see the future to some extent, Right, we can all we all have some sort of powers of prediction, and we can rattle off examples. But the point is, in certain applications, in certain circumstances, and and um, when certain things are, are are deemed important, AI is way better at seeing the future than we are. We'll leave it at that. We can get technical about, uh, you know deep learning, um, you know, the, the, the specifics of deep learning or the general category of machine learning or whether, uh, y- you know, rule-based systems or all the other different sort of AI paradigms is, is really AI or which one of them is best at predicting or, I mean, what, what's more predictable, a, a program that you write that runs as you predicted it to, would write or, or a program that successfully identifies the contents of an image? What's more predictable? Or what's doing more prediction? Well, one's more predictable, but if if the other is built right, the the gap closes quickly. These are not easy things to think about without delving into the the details, but suffice it to say, uh, AI is often very good at predicting things, like whether or not you're straight or gay, or what you're going to click on, given a certain stimulation on the screen i mean that's what we're designing these things to do among other things that's what we're designing them to do and we're succeeding at what we're what we're designing them to do or we're succeeding in our designs because we tend to do that we don't tend to fail to build cars and rockets and houses and buildings and machine and computers and machines that can predict the future now not everything about the future is predictable to these machines yet or predictable by these machines yet or by the one people who control them but now is not later. Later is coming. Now is here. Presumably, later looks different from now. Who is the they? If we say they can see you, who is the they? The machines? The artificial intelligence? Well, yeah, okay depending on where we are in the timeline, depending on whether in any comprehensible sense these things are awake at all. Like, are they as awake as an amoeba? I mean, they're surely far more awake than an amoeba. No one disagrees about whether or not an amoeba is life. But there would be profound disagreement about whether or not a server farm is life. And yet, just look at what they're doing. I mean, fruit flies house flies i mean they all die very quickly they all stop what they're doing and become you know material and food for the next generation very quickly compared to human lifespans a server farm is almost certainly going to outlive any given server farm that you could point to today i gotta be careful is this true it's, it's almost certainly going to outlive everyone who's listening to this podcast is that true Look, I don't know if it's true, but the crazy, it could be, right? Buildings last longer than people these days. Not every single one of them, and not if there's a super earthquake or whatever. But the building, and then what's in it, lasts longer than people these days. But we're not even thinking about these things as if they're some form of life. We're still saying the amoeba is above the server farm? That can't be right. Who is the They? If it's not the machines, if it's not the AIs or the AI, it could be one thing, you know. We don't have to pluralize it. It's totally, you know, it's all networked. Not every I mean, I'm sure there are air-gapped advanced systems that, that sufficiently concerned uh, and sufficiently talented teams of engineers are air-gapping in case these systems wake up and fulfill all of our nightmares, you know, before we were ready for it. But let's say the vast majority of AI systems are networked via the internet. Is it are we is it is it a they or is is it a is it a is it a he? Is it a she? An it? It's not obvious. But who is the they if it's not the machines? Clearly it's the people who control them. Do you control any AI, dear listener? You could. I mean, depending on your definition of AI and depending depending on how satisfied you are with the power of your AI, I mean, you're not, I guess you control your smart speaker. And if you use your phone with voice control, even if you don't, I mean, just, you know, wiggling your finger on the, you kind of control it. There's AI in there, you know, in some sense, but you're not at the controls. You know, you're not, you're not flying that plane. Who's flying those planes? Whoever it is, that's, that's the they. Whoever controls AI is the they who can see us. If not they alone, or perhaps they and the machines themselves, who can see through, or who, who, who do not, who are not fooled by our camouflage, and who do not find it difficult to predict our next clicks or you know it's more than just clicks it's purchase decisions it's it's you know standard input typing things into google or amazon or target or you know archive.org wherever you're going to type things in the they whoever they are can see you and they they can see future you not very far Not very reliably, but more reliably than you can see future you, in some instances. There's that story about the, um, uh, the, the, I think it was Target, uh, who were using, what were they using? Were they using AI? I think they were using sort of, you know, an AI prediction system. Maybe Maybe it was deep learning, I'm not sure. Or, you know, at least machine learning. To try to predict based on online behavior. Um... Whether someone was pregnant, because if you know they're pregnant, uh, then you can you know put products in front of them and be more likely to sell those products, right? If, you're, if you could read the minds or the biologies of you know pregnant women or, or newly pregnant women and get to them before the the other you know pram or diaper or nappy <laughs> diaper or nappy you got to pick one nappy company could get to them. You plant that seed. Buy these nappies. I say nappies. It's, it's a personal reason. Buy this pram. Buy this buggy. Buy this car seat. You get to them first, right? So there's motivation to do that. Well, Target was motivated to do that, and they ended up um, pitching these products to, uh, I think she was a teenager, and the dad caught on and was livid understandably why are you you're treating my my precious teenage daughter like she's pregnant well she turned out to be pregnant but dad didn't know i don't even know if the girl knew i think target might have known before the girl knew but don't call me on that anyway seeing into the future a little bit that's what they can see in addition to your failing camouflage and there's a big difference between the they today and the they tomorrow Right? Whatever they, machines or their controllers or both, today can see, they'll be able to see in the same way tomorrow, but in addition to new things they can see, more things they can see, because tomorrow has more of something in it, more progress, more technology, more development, more discovery, whatever it is, more of, it's there in tomorrow, so they is not the same today as it will be tomorrow. Well, if we're talking about seeing things, I mean, the best thing to see is reality, right? We definitely want to see reality. Well, I, there's it turns out that you don't you have no idea whether you want to see reality. It that's um that turns out to be something that you can't just take for granted, and the reason is. Uh, reality might not be good for you. And I don't mean this in a worldly sense, I mean it in an unworldly sense, that at least some people, some people who get paid to think about such things, believe, and and are arguing, in a technical sense, uh, that we have not evolved, and nor should we have evolved, to see reality, that it's not true that we're the most successful species on this planet because we can see how things are better than other species. Uh, we've evolved to see whatever, it, whatever things make us live longer and reproduce. That's sort of the basic evolutionary argument, that you know, things that lead to survival and reproduction get selected for Variations of, you know, in, in, within a species and, and among species generally get selected for by – basically by death. Um, and that's, that applies to our perception of the world as much as it applies to things like walking upright and having opposable thumbs. You know, we, and and the, so let's, let's talk about uh, Donald Hoffman and his case against reality. The basic point of which is that um, seeing a perception of anything is is about survival and not about the truth. Uh, he says, he, he's written a book about it. Uh, we're not going to talk about the book. We're not ready to do that. Uh, there's a good article, in an uh, interview in uh, The Atlantic from a few years ago, uh, 2016. And it's really just a repost of... Uh, an an interview that was in uh quanta magazine um, and he says this uh the math uh, he says uh, Where is that? Okay, so he he says basically what I just said, which is that you know there's this sort of implicit argument that we are more fit because we see more re- see reality more clearly, or we see more of reality. And he says this, but I think it is utterly false. It misunderstands the fundamental fact about evolution, which is that it's about fitness functions, mathematical functions that describe how well a given strategy achieves the goals of survival and reproduction. The mathematical physicist Chetan Prakash proved a theorem that I devised that says according to evolution by natural selection an organism that sees reality as it is will never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality but is just tuned to fitness never it will never be more fit than an organism that doesn't care that has no no connection, whatever we mean by connection, to reality, it will never be more fit than that crazy living in a dream world organism that is tuned to fitness nonetheless. And that could be us. There could have been organisms out there that saw, you know, octopuses, octopi. Maybe they see reality as it is. And, And we don't. And it doesn't matter because we're more fit than them. We rule the earth because of our dream world. That's sort of the idea coming from Hoffman. It also, I mentioned uh, the in a uh, previous segment, The uh, I think it was the last one, uh, segment eight, um, the illusion of, of, of things that go up being longer than things that go out in front of us. So, so you know, skyscrapers seem... Like longer distances to the top than they actually are. The argument of the paper that and I cite that in the notes re eight uh, the paper um, the, the the argument of that of the authors of that paper is that this is sort of an evolutionary adaptation that there's there's cost to doing to going up. You know, it takes more energy to go up. Uh, it's it's riskier when it's riskier because you can fall down when you go up. So that we see these things as being further because our our visual system uh, is adapted to price in the the costs the, the 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 risks uh to fitness of going up you know there's a reason we have there's a common you know fear of heights and and I don't know if you have a fear of heights you might not but then if you stand at the edge of um a skyscraper when no wind is blowing and you you know if you suddenly feel like maybe you're not as stable on your feet as you think you are that's a fear of heights it might not be it might not be overwhelming most of the time but you know put yourself in a close enough situation to death that's a fear of height well okay what are you afraid of you're afraid of the very real uh, uh, thing that you had to adapt and your ancestors had to adapt to which is falling off things is bad for reproduction bad for survival so that's priced in the authors were arguing to our uh, to our uh, to how we see things that's why tall buildings look like they're farther up than they are and that's why a thousand feet in front of you looks like a shorter distance than a thousand feet above you. Okay. So Hoffman thinks that the authors of the article on you know the the best way to understand that, um, if you can call it an optical illusion, uh, is is this sort of upside down T experiment you can do. Just just take two bars that are exactly the same length, put them in an upside-down T formation, and it looks like the the vertical bar is longer, even though they're the same length. That's easier. It's easier than going to find— you might not have skyscrapers near you. Many of us don't. I don't. Okay, so I don't want you to have to go find a, a skyscraper to verify what we're, what we're hearing, you know, to test the ideas we're hearing about here. It's inconvenient. Go find two bars that are—two pens that are the same length. I'll, I'll do it right now. I've got two. One in my ear, one on the desk. It works. I'm telling you. I'm looking at it right now. They're the same exact pen— Put them in an upside down T. The one, the the tall one looks taller. Promise. I just ran that experiment, but I'm not going to write it up. Okay. Uh. So maybe what we see is more about surviving and reproducing than it is about reality. Okay. I mean you you can't just you can't just sort of pocket that idea. That's going to take some thinking. There's not we're not going to be able to to explore the implications of that quickly. But, um, what, do we have any sort of leading ideas about the, you know, what reality really is? What's the truth about the world? And by the way, um, Hoffman, uh, goes on to say that, you know, there's something about networking, conscious, and not conscious, he he says, what does he call it? He doesn't say, consciousness is that word that gets you in trouble a lot of the time. Um... Uh, well, you know, minds. Okay, you can you can cut the. I think it's the corpus callosum, the, you know, the, joint, the connecting tissue between the two hemispheres of the brain. And then it's like, you know, you do experiments on a person who's had that unfortunate procedure, and it seems like there are two consciousnesses suddenly. That they're, because they're not physically connected in the sense, you know, in the conventional, classical Newtonian sense of physically connected, uh, they start to behave as if they're not. You know, meant, they're, they're two things. And so, if that's true, then the converse can be true. The more you connect. Um, you know, observers or, or conscious entities uh, then, then the more they become singular and so we, it goes back to the who is the they maybe it's not a they maybe it's an it or a he or a him if we're talking about the artificial intelligence of the future or maybe the present we don't know and maybe we aren't as individual as we feel I feel pretty individual right now but why am I making all these noises to connect to you Why are you listening to them? To connect to me. Or, not to connect, but because you already are connected. We are connected, dear listener. Maybe. Maybe we are one. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, well, let's say, for the sake of argument, that uh, quantum theory and the weirdness thereof uh, is, is our best sort of understanding or shot at understanding the real you know, what, what the real world is like. You know, it doesn't have sunrises and sunsets and and, and and experimental apparatuses or apparati. It doesn't have cell phones and sticky notes and other things that are on my desk. Uh, it, it has it has weirdness and things that are like ghosts and things that things that we think of as being particles. But also, we have to th- say that they're also waves, and that they, and that you can't know the position and the velocity of them at the same time. You, not that you, not that we can't, because we're not able to yet. It can't be done because of the basic nature of the real world. Just like, just like you can't be in two places at once. It seems, although quantum entanglement, maybe you can. The superluminal uh, transmission of information is still an idea out there, if not. I don't think anybody has achieved that. Although I know quantum computers are starting to be a thing, and entanglement is, I think, part of that. And it's the error rate of quantum, quantum computers that's, that's hard to deal with, but they seem to be figuring it out bit by bit, no pun intended, qubit by qubit. Okay, so what about this quantum world? Well, uh, John Stuart Bell in 1984 had a talk in May of 1984. Called "Speakable and Unspeakable in Quantum Mechanics," uh, tries to explain the the sort of misunderstood and yet still profound weirdness of the quantum world. He first sort of slays the idea that um, that that we as the observers sort of bring reality into or bring bring about reality by observing. The quantum theory, he says, doesn't. It doesn't say that, doesn't support that at all, because it's really the apparatuses that we build to test quantum ideas that need to be, quote unquote, observing quantum events in order for them to happen. If you haven't heard of the collapsing of the waveform and all this, there's all this technical jargon around quantum theory, and we can get into that at another time, but just take my word for it. It's weird. Particles are not particles. Waves are not just waves. There's something, perhaps, you know, we think that the idea is that there's there are things out there or there's one thing out there that has lots of manifestations that 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 acts like a particle and a wave at the same time and I don't mean at the same time you know you can be you know a father and a husband I mean at the same time it would be like you were yourself and your brother or yourself and a boat that's that's the sort of wave particle duality it's very strange traveling through walls Um, but they, it's not that they're, they're not, they're not ghosts in the sense that they, um, they don't interact with the world. They just don't interact with the world anything like we think they, we think they should be billiard balls. Okay. Uh, particle accelerators, if you look in the cloud chamber of a particle accelerator, you know, the photographs of cloud chambers of a particle accelerator, it looks like a little, little bead, a little billiard ball, you know. They crash into each other, and maybe they break into smaller ones, and then they go into circles, you know, into spirals, and all this beautiful stuff happens. But that's that turns out not to be the only thing that they're doing. They're also, uh, and I don't, I don't know how if this is ever demonstrated in cloud chambers, but it's definitely dem- demonstrated in the so-called double slit experiment. Um, you shoot, like, one photon at... I'm doing this from memory. It's been a while since I delved into quantum physics. You shoot one photon. You know, we've figured out how to make machines that shoot what we think is one photon, or you know, we don't really know what the nature of reality is. But let's say they're shooting what we think is this billiard ball, and and you put you shoot it at some metal thing that has two slits in it, and then it seems to go through both of them, and and on the other side there's like a wave pattern, like like a diff- you know diffraction pattern. It's like it, it would be like you dropped two rocks into a body of water and then they start this interference thing and it's like but we only shot one rock why why which hole did it go through? which slit did it go through and the answer is yes and and it went through that one and that one yes it went through them which one both okay uh quantum physics lesson over from me now let's hear from john stewart bell uh He says, why why this necessity to refer to apparatus when we could discuss quantum phenomena? The physicists who first came upon such phenomena found them so bizarre that they despaired of describing them in terms of ordinary concepts like space and time, position and velocity. The founding fathers of quantum theory decided even that no concepts could possibly be found which could permit direct description of the quantum world. So the theory which they established aimed only to describe systematically the response of the apparatus, and what more, after all, is needed for application. Okay, so then he says this, "'It's as if our friends,' and by friends he means the apparatuses, apparati, "'it's as if our friends could not find the words to tell us about the very strange places where they went on holiday.'" We could see for ourselves whether they came back browner or fatter. This would be enough for us to be able to advise other friends who might wish to be browner or fatter about those strange places. Our apparatus visits the microscopic world for us, and we see what happens to it as a result. The problem, then, is this. How exactly is the world to be divided into speakable apparatus that we can talk about, and unspeakable quantum system, that we cannot talk about. How many electrons, or atoms, or molecules make an apparatus? The mathematics of the ordinary theory requires such a division, but says nothing about how it is to be made. The ordinary quantum theory says nothing about how it is to be made. In practice, the question is resolved by pragmatic recipes which have stood the test of time, applied with discretion and good taste, born of experience." but should not fundamental theory permit exact mathematical formulation? Our friends, these poor apparatuses that we send to the quantum world, they come back with weirdness evidence of that, evidence of weirdness in that world, browner, fatter, but they can't talk about what happened. That's the... Okay, so we want to see reality... Maybe the, maybe we think that the machines want us the the machines AIs the the, the the controllers we think they want to see reality. No, no, no. We've been working on reality since the the you know nineteen teens and twenties, especially. And it is we have no business in reality if if what we've been finding with quantum physics and and now perhaps with with um with Hoffman's ideas about. You know perception being adaptive instead of adaptive for survival and reproduction instead of based on closer and closer approximation to truth you know russell we, we quoted we quoted Russell early in uh, retrace uh, talking about how uh, empiricism it, it seems to be getting us closer and closer to agreement with reality, uh, but even he elsewhere and I, we won 't go into this now, but even he understood when, when, when relativity and quantum theory came out during, you know, in the middle of his lifetime, he realized that it was a total game changer, that you just can't think about the world as being, you know, mind and matter. That's over. That's totally over. And he writes, you know, at length about it. Um, but but we have no business with reality if if these experiments, these browner and fatter apparatuses coming back, We have no, they can't talk to us. They can only just come and go from this strange reality. We have no business with that. What about the machines? Are they going to? Are they going to see reality more clearly? You know, we want to build them that. We want to know more about reality, we think, or we want to at least know better answers to the questions that occur to us as we're doing business and being curious and trying to do medicine and all these other things that we do that we involve computers and especially artificial intelligence. Uh, You know, we, we want to know more about reality, don't we? maybe depends on what you depends on what you mean by reality but the machines if they're anything like us and if hoffman is right they're not going to care about reality just like we don't they're going to come up with whatever dream world suits their purposes of survival and reproduction or survival and growth maybe they don't need to reproduce although you know iterative trial and error and all that's probably how it's going to play out uh if it does play out at all. So, if we're, <laughs> if we have it in our heads that they see, you know, that, that the machines can see things and the, the the controllers of the machines can see things and that they can see us in a way that we can't see each other or see ourselves and they can see the future better than us, we have to let go if Hoffman is right and if, if, if the quantum physicists are right we have to let go of any connection between that and reality, and and at least contemplate that they might start seeing whatever makes it more likely that they come to power. Come to power. I'm not. I'm not prophesying, you know, take over the machines. Everybody's worried about that, but you know who knows. But th- that's kind of like what they're. They seem to, you know, have a, the potential to do. Come to power, right? But, I, but who knows what's going to happen. But let's just say this. They are not going to see reality. If they do, it's a coincidence. They, they're going to see what makes them live longer and reproduce. And we think that because of Hoffman's argument that that's what we do, and that's what every organism does. So what? what's the work? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, we have to change the way we think about these things. If that's it, At least that idea needs to be on the table as we consider artificial intelligence. It should be on the table as we consider competition of any sort. You know, good guys and bad guys. Um, but it has to be on I don't know. I don't know what the work is. I don't know what you do about that. If it's true, if it's true that we, you know, we're just, we're seeing... It, what we see could be as much dream world as, as approximation, close approximation of reality... That's going to take some dwelling and some contemplation and reflection that we have not yet done. So we don't know. We don't know, so what? All right. Uh, Correction quickly here from uh, the last segment, Re8. I said, uh, Gray Walter refer to him as Sir Grey Walter. I don't know why I knighted him. He's not a knight. He wasn't knighted as far as I could tell. Uh, My apologies to the Queen. He was not Sir Grey Walter. He's just Grey Walter. I think I might have had deep in my recesses um, Sir Walter Raleigh, but anyway, there's your correction. All right, this is Retrace, segment number nine, signing off.